Thank you guys for tuning in today and welcome to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, San Raza. And today I'll be talking to Professor Jeffrey Sachs about the war in Ukraine. Jeffrey Sachs serves as the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, where he holds the title of university professor, the university's highest academic rank. Jeffrey Sachs is also a world-renowned economist, best-selling author, innovative educator, and a global leader in sustainable development. Jeffrey is also known for his work in advising governments worldwide on economic reforms, and as, as well as working with international agencies on debt, poverty reduction, as well as disease control. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you so much for your time today. Great to be with you. My pleasure. Before we get into the war in Ukraine, I would like to start with some context and examine why Russian integration into the political and economic realm of the West failed. Many former foes of the US, for example, Japan, Vietnam, Germany, were either integrated economically or politically or both. You have a unique insight as you advise the economic teams of the Soviet uh, President Mikhail Gorbachev, Russian President Boris Yeltsin, and even Ukrainian President Leonid Kushma in the past. Couldn't you provide some context to why the West failed to integrate Russia or vice versa? Well, I think uh, the U.S. wanted uh, Russia to uh, integrate in a way that was subservient to U.S. power. Uh, and uh, Russia wanted to integrate as a, an independent uh, nation uh, that was itself uh, a geopolitical power. And this is really the clash. Uh, the United States uh, believes itself to be the unipolar superpower, the unique superpower of the world. Countries that disagree with that, most importantly, China and Russia, uh, become uh, perceived by the U.S. as uh, anti-American rather than pro-multipolarity. And so this is really the fundamental difference. Of course, the U.S. mindset uh, transcended uh, the uh, events of the late 80s or early 90s. The whole Cold War was viewed as confrontation with Russia. And I would add that uh, Britain's hatred of Russia goes back centuries uh, for a lot of uh, reasons. And so uh, Britain was already rapidly Russophobic in the 19th century. And uh, a lot of what we see in the rhetoric and in the British media today is a kind of replay of the Crimean War uh, uh, drumbeats uh, that uh, occurred in the middle of the 19th century. It's uh, you would say it's almost humorous if it weren't so tragic and deadly. Uh, but a lot of the uh, same points and rhetoric and ugliness that one sees in the comment pages, even of what I think of as sophisticated media like the Financial Times, is pretty simplistic and ugly and very russophobic. You were tasked to implement economic reforms in former Soviet Union as well as Russia during the 90s. What happened there when you asked for uh, economic assistance in ensuring that these market reforms take place? How was the response of Washington back then? Well, just to be clear, I wasn't tasked with implementing anything. You know, I'm an advisor uh, and, and no, uh, no power role. Uh, uh, but they saw me as uh, possibly a channel to Western finance. And I told them that I would try to be a channel to Western finance. Why? Because I believe that when a country is in financial trouble, the uh, international financial system should help 
that country to get out of trouble, both as a basic matter of morality and ethics and as a win-win proposition for global cooperation. My guru in this is John Maynard Keynes, who wrote famously uh, the economic consequences of the peace in 1919. And his argument was that the harsh Versailles settlement with Germany would lead to future disaster. It's one of the prophetic books of the 20th century. Uh, when I was both a student and practitioner of uh, finance, I, I took my cue from John Maynard Keynes, don't be nasty to the defeated power or to the country that is down on its luck. Uh, things that go around, uh, come around, go around. Uh, if, if it's bad one day for somebody, it could be bad for you the next. It's better to be cooperative. I tried uh, in the early 1990s to mobilize Western financial support for Gorbachev's reforms, complete failure. And then uh, President Yeltsin's team asked me similarly, I was a complete failure in, in uh, mobilizing support, basically uh, not on economic argument grounds. My economics is good. It was good at the time. Uh, what I had recommended for Poland in financial terms was adopted because Poland was on our side. Uh, and uh, I recommended debt relief. I recommended emergency stabilization funding. And it worked. Uh, it wasn't just a theory. It worked. Uh, so when I recommended the same thing with Russia, I thought, well, I've already shown that these ideas make sense. Uh, and they do make sense. But Washington rejected them not because of the economic debate, which it was sometimes portrayed, but because of the geopolitics, which is, uh, yeah, Poland's on our side, of course, we'll help, but they are on the other side. So, of course, we won't help. And it is almost as simple as that. Let us move to a fundamental debate that has failed in the German corporate media regarding Ukraine. We have also interviewed a wide range of experts from Noam Chomsky, Chris Hezis, Vijay Prashad, Peter Kasek on this matter. So it would be interesting to get your view as well. Denazification and demilitarizations were reasons given by the Russian state to justify its war in Ukraine. Do you think these reasons had any legitimacy? Look, the, the core of this is the clash between the United States and Russia. That clash goes back to 1992 when the neoconservatives took over American foreign policy. Uh, this was originally Rumsfeld, Cheney, Wolfowitz in the administration of George W. Bush Sr. But there are a lot of neocons around. Madeleine Albright was a neoconservative. Hillary Clinton was a neoconservative. Victoria Newland, who was Assistant Secretary of State, during the Maidan in 2014, is now the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. She's a neoconservative. And so what happened was the U.S. foreign policy, starting in 1992, aimed for U.S. dominance, uh, sometimes called full-spectrum dominance, that in every region of the world, the U.S. should be able to blow away uh, figuratively. I hope uh, it's, uh, uh, its opponents and antagonists and to have uh, geopolitical dominance through military, financial, economic, technological and other means. And in 1992, that was the view. And it looked, oh, who, who could rival us? 
Russia's down on its knees. China's a poor rural uh, country. Well, of course, uh, it was never realistic. The world's never dominated by one country in all of history, though there have been empires, of course, that are powerful. But there's always going to be rivalry and always multipolarity in some sense. And that's especially true in the 21st century. Russia did not uh, buckle uh, under the U.S. Uh, view. Uh, China, <laughs> even less so. Uh, in in uh, I, I would say both of them say, no, we don't want a U.S.-led unipolar world. Now, the U.S. began to implement this in the 1990s with NATO enlargement. Anyone that knows the archival record knows that it wasn't just a loose uh, verbiage, but it was a decided policy of Germany and the United States to promise to Gorbachev no NATO enlargement to the east. And not just to the east, to GDR, to the east. And so a lot of what's said right now is just typical U.S. government spin. But the archival record is actually very extensive. Then in uh, the mid-1990s, Clinton started saying the same to Yeltsin, I know, uh, that, uh, no, no, we're going to have a partnership system. We're not going to have NATO enlargement. But then Madeleine Albright pushed the neocon agenda. We're expanding NATO. And it created a big uh, division inside the U.S. because there are some normal non-neocons inside the U.S., and I'm one of them, uh, and uh, said, no, NATO enlargement is a bad idea. And Bill Perry, who was the Secretary of Defense of Clinton, came close to resigning over this issue. George Kennan, who was our greatest statesman scholar uh, of the 20th century vis-a-vis -vis Russia, said this is the new Cold War. That was back in 1997 that he said that. Then many events followed. Uh, the U.S.-led uh, alliance bombed Belgrade uh, in 1999, broke Serbia apart uh, deliberately as part of its uh, geopolitics, uh, and as per neocon ideas, went to war with all of uh, Russia's allies in the Middle East, uh, overthrowing Saddam Hussein, overthrowing Gaddafi. Uh, trying to overthrow Assad. So this was a very expansionist period of uh, the U.S., uh, trillions of dollars spent on expansionist wars. And in 2014, the U.S. was part of the successful effort to overthrow Yanukovych. This is absolutely clear. Although we don't know every bit, we know a lot. And I know a lot uh, from my own uh, knowledge about these events. The U.S. played a role in overthrowing a president of Ukraine who was basically pro-Russian, but basically trying to keep some kind of stable equilibrium between the two sides through neutrality of Ukraine. Yes, we want Western this. Yes, we want to keep relations with Russia. Very fragile because the U.S. is pushing NATO enlargement and Russia saying, hell no. And this is what was happening. And Yanukovych was overthrown and a Western Ukraine, highly nationalist government was brought into power. And at that moment, Putin did what he warned George Bush Jr. he would do at the Bucharest summit in 
2008, Putin said to uh, to uh, George Bush, you expand NATO, we take Crimea back. Don't do it. But the U.S. doesn't listen. So uh, we went to this direct clash, war in the Donbass. And then, you know, sad to say, uh, the Minsk agreements were reached. Germany and uh, France were to be the guarantors. But I don't know if Mrs. Merkel, Chancellor Merkel, is speaking ex post as an excuse or telling what she thought at the time, but it's dreadful. What we do know is that the Ukrainians walked away from the Minsk agreements. After signing, my friends tell me, Jeff, how could you ever expect us to honor that? That's trash. I say, yeah, you have an agreement. Ah, an agreement. And we're supposed to take this with a straight face. And Germany was a solemn guarantor, uninterested. In the meantime, the U.S. poured in billions of dollars of armaments. By the end of 2021, Putin said to Biden, look, here are the red lines. And the number one red line is NATO enlargement, by far, by the way. And the U.S. said, we're not going to talk about that. Our door is open, which is a ridiculous idea. We're not talking about trade. We're talking about military alliances. What is this open door of military alliances in history that you don't care who your neighbors are aligned with, where the military bases are, what the weapons are? This is crazy rhetoric, I'm sorry to say, so provocative and dangerous and The invasion started in February 2022, but the war, everyone should understand, started in February 2014. The war did not start in February 2022, and this is not the West reacting. The United States started in 1992 to break the agreements that it had given to Gorbachev. Why? Because they felt they could. That's it. For me, it is quite clear that you're providing understanding and the role that the West played. But in German media and political discourse, uh, this would be quickly labeled as justifying or the war or spreading Russian propaganda. Why do you think it is so difficult for Western media outlets and politicians to differentiate between understanding the role we played in this conflict that could perhaps help us learn from our mistakes and build a better foreign policy going forward versus justifying Russia's actions? We need diplomats. Unfortunately, we don't have diplomats in Germany and in the United States right now because the foreign minister of Germany and the secretary of state of uh, the United States are not engaging in diplomacy. They're engaging in war. This is different. Diplomacy is to sit down and talk to your counterpart to understand these issues. I was invited to give a talk to the G20 foreign ministers last year online when they were meeting in Bali. I said to them, you are the diplomats, meet with each other. I don't think that Foreign Minister Baerbach met with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, though they were in the same room. We need diplomacy. There is no way out of this mess without diplomacy. And if the diplomats want to be the ministers of war, 
then we should have those who want to be diplomats engaging in diplomacy. And we need that dialogue. I am in everyday dialogue with multiple sides. I hear from the Russian point of view. I hear from Turkey as mediator. I hear from Ukrainians. I hear from Western governments. I hear from the United States. I hear from Brazil, China, others. There are important views that need to be explained. And we're not getting that at all. And the media has forgotten its role. The media's role is not to quote unnamed senior officials. That is not the role of the media. The media's role is to scrutinize, to express doubt, to ask hard questions, to challenge authority, because it's not surprising that uh, at war, our governments tell tales. They want to present narratives. They want to hide facts. They want to hide hard truths. But the media, what is the media for? Is it just for advertising revenues? Is it just for having uh, the ability to have a cup of coffee with the senior government official? Or is it to scrutinize and express doubt? Where is the German media on Nord Stream, for example? Here, a major piece of infrastructure was blown up, I believe, most likely by the United States or the UK, but on the Western side, quiet, silence. When I said this on American television, I was immediately cut off. But then, by the way, all of the circumstantial evidence points in that way. Sweden, <laughs> incredibly, uh, says, OK, we've investigated, but we're not going to share the results of our investigation with Germany. Members of the Bundestag ask, we want to know the facts. The German government says, no, uh, you cannot know the facts. Uh, this is a security issue. We're supposed to take this. We, we call ourselves democracies. And this is the level of discourse. So the media really I, and I mean, look, there's a lot of media and you're part of it and it's great. We're having a, a, a wonderful open discussion and points of view that are very hard to express, actually, in the mainstream. But this mainstream media has lost its way. I can't tell you how disappointed I am every day in The New York Times because I grew up with The New York Times and I used to read it for the Pentagon Papers for telling the lies about Vietnam, uh, exposing them, for telling the lies of the Nixon administration. Now all it is is a mouthpiece for government. You don't get anything different. I can't even publish an op-ed on sites that I was <laughs> probably the main contributor in, in many cases because the mainstream media have lost their sense of their role. Completely. It's it is absolutely troubling and strange. I want to go uh, through some counter arguments with you that are usually made. For example, the first part, NATO was also stationed in Poland and Latvia that has borders with Russia and they have coexisted uh, somewhat peacefully. Um, NATO was not planning an, uh, an intervention. Uh, and the second counter argument that is made is Ukraine is a independent and sovereign state and has a right to make 
military deals with anyone it pleases, including NATO. How would you respond to these two arguments? I would say that, first of all, NATO is often an aggressive uh, force, uh, almost an expeditionary force of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, bombing Belgrade in 1999 was completely unjustified. The actions uh, that NATO took uh, in Libya, in my opinion, completely unjustified and far exceeded the U.N. mandate. And the United States foreign policy is based on regime change. So how much trust can there be, uh, especially after events like the Maidan? The United States is not a peace-loving country. It is a power-seeking country. Not surprisingly, perhaps, uh, I, I'm told by uh, smart cynics, well, isn't that always the case? And maybe it is. But then let's not kid ourselves with the rhetoric that is used. The United States has overthrown dozens of governments. It definitely contributed to the overthrow of Yanukovych. Uh, it definitely tried to overthrow uh, al-Assad uh, in Syria and was a major provocation of the war there. And I know this from the inside, not just from the outside. So I just want to be clear I, I, that I know from top people involved in these issues what I'm discussing right now. So this is one thing, this idea of this peace-loving da-da-da-da-da is, is not what a military alliance is. This is a military alliance that serves military and geopolitical purposes, and it should show restraint. In my opinion, by the way, just to put it clearly, when the Warsaw Pact was disbanded, by Gorbachev, I think NATO should have ended. That's my own view. We should have gone to OSCE. We should have gone to uh, a European security arrangement. But we didn't because the neocons in the United States said, OK, now's really our chance. And I was uh, at a conference recently in Eastern Europe where a NATO spokesman came in. It looked almost like a Star Wars event. He was full in uniform and there was a screen in back. And he talked about how uh, NATO plays the vital role in, in the Black Sea region. And in it will be crucial for Eurasia or something like that. I said, oh, my God, what is this? Uh, it's uh, almost like a cartoon I don't want to hear that. I was at an economics conference, by the way. I don't want to see NATO officials at an economics conference. So th this is really, uh, um, really an important point. And because this is a military alliance, it's not true that you just get to choose who you have your military alliances. It's, there's a concept called externalities, which is that... Uh, your choice may have adverse consequences for uh, the, the one next door. Should the U.S. have a NATO base in the sea of Azov? Well, Russia doesn't think so. By the way, I don't think so. I don't think it's prudent. And I don't think it's smart of Ukraine to not recognize that it's in a delicate balancing act and should be prudent and careful. And uh, I'm living... Uh, and experiencing, well, I, I'm seeing success of neutrality in many places. Let's just put it this way. Uh, and uh, in my view, you be careful 
in this world. And you recognize that military alliances are dangerous because they lead to wars often. We should not have these military alliances. We should not be expanding military alliances in Asia uh, to counter China. These are dangerous provocations. If you want really a historical analogy, it is maybe 1910. All these alliances being built. Well, and then a tripwire was uh, was was crossed uh, in 1914, and the world was never the same again. But let's avoid that. In December last year, there was a lot of voicing for diplomacy stated by French President Macron, even President Biden. The German Chancellor, for example, even spoke to Putin for an hour on the phone reportedly. However, the tone has completely shifted since the start of the new year. To begin the new year, NATO General Secretary Jens Stoltenberg said, and I'm quoting him here, Weapons are, in fact, the way to peace. Now we're seeing all sorts of weapons from armored vehicles, artillery, Patriot defense systems uh, being committed to Ukraine. And the UK has now upped the ante by sending the Challenger two battle tanks. All eyes are on Berlin now. All the pressures on Berlin. Tomorrow they're meeting. Um, all the defense ministers are meeting at Ramschen Air Base. And it is expected that Germany will at some point um, capitulate to all this pressure and send also battle tanks known as the Leopard 2. What advice would you give to leaders of this conference if you were participating as well? And do you think advanced offensive weapons could change the tide of war? The advice I would give to leaders period is sit down and start talking. Most importantly, uh, President Biden and President Putin. And how can we have an approach that does not also include negotiations? This is mind boggling. You see, it's quite interesting. Our top general in the United States, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said, now is the time to negotiate. The next day, Victoria Newland, who's our neocon in chief in the State Department, said, no, no negotiations. The whole idea is to bat down at all times any possibility of discussion. The only thing that's allowed in the narrative is war. Negotiations not even to be tried. So aside from all the weapon systems and whatever one thinks, open negotiations. And understand, by the way, and it's quite clear, Chancellor Schultz said to Putin at the, at the beginning of all of this, NATO won't enlarge on my watch. He said, yes, you're Chancellor of Germany. What about NATO itself? How long are you going to be there? And the point is very simple. This is, first of all, a U.S.-led alliance. This is a 30-year U.S. project to expand NATO. President Biden's only words on this are, the door is open. The United States repeats at every occasion that Ukraine will become a member of NATO. What the Europeans could say clearly to Biden is, come on. You have put us in a terrible bind. You have, you're crushing our industry. You're bringing us closer to war and all over something that should not have happened at all, which was 
this intention to expand NATO, because when that was put on the table in 2008, Germany was against it. France was against it. I know. I talked to the leaders then. But they don't say it publicly. They don't admit the truth. And then the media obscure all of this history. So my recommendation is open negotiations. To my last question, according to the United Nations, 7,000 civilians have been killed since the war started, including 433 children. Most recently, 30 to 40 civilians were killed when a Russian missile hit a high-story building in the city of the Dnipro. Given that Russia and even Ukraine are not signatory of the International Criminal Court, um, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock recently called for a special tribunal to be set up at the Hague that should pursue Russian leadership for its crimes in Ukraine. So this is a two-part question. A question, should the West play the role of moral authority? And B, will a special tribunal assist in resolving the conflict and bring justice? No and no. This is, a, this is just provocation. Let's end this war. Let's understand that both sides are party to this war, that there were tremendous Western provocations, that there are terrible outcomes in wars but committed by both sides, that there is propaganda up the wazoo, as we would say, and uh, hype and so forth. So let's have serious negotiations and Frankly, let's have some diplomacy from Germany. Diplomacy. That means diplomacy to sit down with counterparts in Russia, to talk, to learn, to understand, to find a path to peace. Jeffrey Sachs, best-selling author and world-renowned economist, thank you so much for your time today. Great to be with you. I appreciate it. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Please join our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. YouTube is shadow banning our content. Our information will not be able to reach you if you do not make this transition. And also to donate, even if it's just $1 via PayPal or Patreon, your contribution will help us to continue our independent journalism going forward. I'm your host, San Raza. See you guys next time.